peculiar time of the year when it's to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the bridge of Sai. The guys who works here went psycho. Welcome to October by May. The short stories of Edward T. May. Presented by James Allen May. Before we start, I wanted to thank everyone who listened to our premiere episode, Misery House. The podcast has been growing ever since, and it has certainly made me anxious and excited to get this second episode out. I've been learning so much about this community of listeners, and I can't wait to share more content with you. I know this quarantine period is hard on everyone, so I wanted to extend my gratitude for making it less hard for me, especially because it was my birthday a few days ago. The past few weeks, I've had my birthday, officially launched this podcast, and had my first commissioned audiobook narration released on Audible. It's completely different than what I do here. It's actually a time management self-help book, but if you're curious to hear more about that, don't hesitate to reach out to me over social media. It has been so great meeting all of you over the internet throughout this process, especially because none of us are meeting any new people in person lately. And it's also wonderful knowing at the outset that we at least have something in common. We all know how awkward it can be to strike up conversation with a stranger. It's halting and uncomfortable as you desperately shuffle through topics or experiences trying to find something you have in common, some topic you can latch onto in order to make conversation flow more easily. It helps your chances of a successful social interaction if you're meeting in a locale that is only appealing to a specific type of person. For the two loners in our first story, that locale is a deserted stone bridge spanning a river just after midnight, the perfect setting for solitary strangers to strike up a conversation. With the night wind whistling through the bridge supports, it's a simultaneously aggressive and anguished sound. Attributes that may just be mirrored by the two visitors themselves. Bridge of Sighs. I have been one acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. Robert Frost, acquainted with the night. I stood on the bridge at midnight as the clocks were striking the hour, and the moon rose o'er the city, behind the dark church tower. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, The Bridge The man's boot heels rhythmically thumped the pavement. He paused in his wanderings as he heard a clock, somewhere in the distance, begin to strike the hour. He listened intently as the preliminary peals were sounded and the clock finally told midnight. My time of the night, he murmured. The man resumed his walk and, on a whim, turned down a narrow course that was unfamiliar to him. The rickety houses lining the road glared at the man through broken panes, as if jealous of his ability to leave the vicinity. Untended yards had long ago renounced any pretensions to individuality, 
unfortunate victims of terminal ennui. Unpleasant odors were transported on the night air and followed the man with the tenacity of bloodhounds. The constricted alleyway eventually shed its encumbrance of shabby dwellings and led the man to a stone bridge spanning a river. He proceeded slowly to the center of the arch, his boot heels keeping time, where he came to a halt. He leaned on the stone railing and watched the moonlight struggle for purchase on the shifting waves. A voice probed the darkness. It was feminine and fragile as a wisp of smoke. I think it might rain. The night hid the man's features, but the protracted silence following the woman's statement betrayed his surprise at finding someone in such close proximity. She sounds so innocent, he thought. So inexperienced and innocent. After some time had elapsed, he spoke, his voice low and calm. Is that good? The woman, perhaps anticipating the question, responded immediately. Oh yes, it's a very good thing. Innocent, all right. I do so like them innocent, he thought. They never expect. A vague throbbing, following the course of the river, approached from behind the couple. Why? I mean to say, why is it a good thing if it rains? He asked. The throbbing grew in intensity and distinctness until it became recognizable as an outboard motor. Because the rain is sad? She responded. The sound of the motor became muffled as the boat passed directly beneath the bridge. I like sad things, she continued. Things like rain and dark secluded places and the wind. I'm especially fond of the wind. The wind is very sad, don't you think? She wants to be liked. She wants to be with people, but... She's unattractive. She's short, overweight, and plain. He speculated to himself. A small boat emerged from underneath the bridge and heedlessly cut a wake through the moonlight as it danced on the black water. I couldn't agree more. The man agreed. The wind can certainly play some doleful tunes. As if on cue, a gust of wind swirled over the bridge. There, the woman exclaimed. Listen, listen as the wind pushes its way through the openings in the bridge and around the supports. Conversation stopped momentarily as the man and woman listened to the wind. It's a bully, that's for certain, she vehemently accused. Don't try and deny it, don't you dare, not for a second. The man had no intention of defending the actions of the wind. He remained silent. But the bridge is stronger than the bully wind, she said gleefully. I must admit, though, she continued in a more somber tone, I like the sound of the bully. When the wind bullies the bridge, it's as if the bridge is moaning or, or sighing. Yes, sighing is a better word for it. The Bridge of Sighs. 
Another gust of wind eddied around the man and woman, and threaded the ornamental apertures in the stone railing lining the bridge. You sound like an educated man, the woman remarked after the wind eased a bit. I'll bet you know all about the real bridge of size. You know, the original one, not this one. The man shifted his weight to his left foot. You're speaking of the one in Venice? He asked. There was a rustle in the dark, as if the woman's clothing had brushed fleetingly against the stone railing. That's the one, she said excitedly. The man produced a pack of cigarettes from a jacket pocket, along with a lighter. The woman could hear the crinkle of cellophane as the man opened the pack. He patiently tapped out a cigarette from among its mates, placed it in his mouth, and returned the pack to the pocket. With his free hand, he shielded the lighter from an errant breeze and lit the cigarette. The smell of the cigarette washed over the woman. I believe it connected the Palace of the Doge, where judgments were passed with the prison. He said at last, mumbling the words around a cigarette. A distant train whistle punctuated his sentence. She's so childlike. She'll be fun to toy with before. Yes, the prisoners crossed over the bridge as they went to prison, uttering sighs as they went, she said dreamily. Can't you hear them? If you put your mind to it, can't you hear them sigh? Of course you can. The man exhaled. You have an admirable imagination, he commented with sincerity. I've had practice using my imagination, she said by way of partial explanation. I'll bet you have. You've been alone most of your life. When you're all alone, it's only natural to develop a vivid imagination, he thought. The train whistle sounded again. Isn't that a sad sound? She noted. Since she's been rejected by people, she's made a world for herself. She reads poetry and romances, and she dreams her life away. This will be so easy, so very easy. Not at all like the last one. She was... The tip of the cigarette glowed brightly as the man inhaled. A slight pause, and then the sound of an exhalation. Yes, I've always considered train whistles to be a mournful sound, the man finally admitted, especially at night. A raindrop exploded on the pavement. I must make this last as long as possible. I must maximize the pleasure. Who knows when I might get another chance such as this? Lightning painted the sky. A subdued rumble followed. You mentioned earlier you had a fondness for sad things. Is that why you're here? The man asked. The woman did not answer immediately, and when she did, her voice sounded as if she were closer to the man. Yes, I think bridges are sad and lonely places. The water made a greedy, licking noise as it lapped at the banks of the river. They are indeed, the man said. I remember one time as I stood on the Golden Gate Bridge, thinking how lonely I felt. The light disappeared from the water as clouds swarmed over the moon. Although it was midday and the traffic was non-stop, 
people in cars constantly passing within a few feet of me. I felt all alone in the world. The man affirmed in a solemn manner. He could sense the woman nodding in the darkness. It was sorrowful as well. He continued, I couldn't help but think of all the people who committed suicide by jumping off the bridge. I also thought about the soldiers who left for the war by ship. Many of them never came back, and one of the final sights they had of their country was the Golden Gate Bridge. The man took a final puff, and with a practiced flick, sent the cigarette sailing through the air. The butt described a fiery arc before it ended its brief life, hitting the water with a tiny hiss. I must say I was surprised to find another person, particularly a woman, out at this time of night, especially in an isolated location such as this. The man remarked, Aren't you even the slightest bit concerned about... about... what might happen to you? The woman moved closer. The man could now see her darkened silhouette. She was below normal stature, as he had suspected, and appeared to be plump as well. He could smell her perfume through the lingering gauze of cigarette smoke. I'm not afraid. I'm good at hiding. And... I'll only let someone know I'm around if... The rest of her statement was consumed by the wind as it roused itself from its temporary stupor and playfully tugged at hair and clothing. If what? The man said curiously. The woman hesitated before answering, as if the first time were an accident and she was now reluctant to repeat the error. If I know they're... like me. She finished. The man thought about her response for a moment. You mean, people who take joy in the moaning wind and the pattering rain? He asked. And lonely places, she added. The man shifted his weight to his right foot. Someone like you, she said diffidently. So naive. He thought as he reached into a pocket of his jacket and wrapped his fingers around a folding knife. I like to talk to people who like the same things I do. And I think this is the best way to meet them in lonely places. She said. Another raindrop splashed the man's hand as he eased the knife out of his pocket and placed it on the stone railing in front of him. You know just what I mean, don't you? She whispered urgently. Another flash of lightning punctured the darkness, and the darkness swallowed it whole. And you think I'm like you? Is that why you didn't hide from me? He asked. The woman waited for the thunder to subside before responding. Yes, she answered, this time with confidence. And I think you feel the same way. That's why you come to places like this. At odd hours of the night, you know the pain of being left out, don't you? The man unfolded the knife. Please say I'm right, the woman pleaded. I do have a purpose in being out at odd hours and in secluded places, the man affirmed. I knew it, she said in a relieved tone. He heard the woman as she sidled closer. She's making it so easy, he thought. 
I don't even need to go to her. She's coming to me. The bridge sighed as the wind surged once again. I think it's time I showed you what my purpose is, the man said. He turned to the woman, knife in hand, when he abruptly felt a sharp pain in his chest. A quick glance revealed a syringe protruding from his body. He slumped against the railing. The woman calmly knelt next to the man and removed the knife from his hand. She then withdrew the syringe from his chest. The man was sentient, but incapable of speech or action. So, you had some plans for me? She said, holding the man's knife in front of his face. You thought you would, what, carve on me a little bit? You thought you'd frighten me? Feed off my fear? The man's eyes expanded. When you're able to scare other people, it's like, oh, nectar, isn't it? I know, because I crave the same thing. She cooed. It's just like a drug. She gripped his head tightly between her hands and brought her own face to within inches of his. Then, as if she'd willed it, an extended charge of lightning ripped the night apart. The ensuing illumination revealed a mouth full of teeth, each one filed neatly into serrated edges and sharp points. Just wait till I get you home. I'm sure whatever it was you had planned for me is nothing compared to what I have planned for you, she hissed. You were getting excited, weren't you? Thinking about playing with me for, what, a few hours at most? The man closed his eyes tightly. I'll keep you alive for days before you finally die, she promised. You see, I wasn't lying when I told you we were alike. You may have seen on Instagram or Twitter that I posted a picture I took of the real Bridge of Sighs in Venice. Having grown up with this story, I was thinking of it while I took that picture, so it's been kind of a cool full-circle moment to use it in relation to my retelling of that story. You may have also seen all the Scarecrow pictures I've been posting. They relate to our second story today. I love how they're literally called Scarecrows, yet they seem to scare us just as effectively. Charlie has been having recurring dreams of the Scarecrow that stood guard of the cornfield outside his childhood window. And they've gotten bad enough that today he's decided to seek psychiatric help. Surely the doctor can help him. That is, unless his fears aren't so delusional, after all. Scarecrow by Moonlight Charlie enters the office and closes the door behind him. The psychiatrist sits behind his desk, perusing a jumbled mass of paperwork. Upon hearing the door close, he glances at Charlie and, with an outstretched arm, motions him to be seated in a chair upholstered in slick, dark brown leather. He turns his attention once again to the folder splayed before him on the desk. Charlie shuffles nervously in the chair and sits, somewhat embarrassed as a whoosh of air escapes. He surveys the office as the psychiatrist continues to read. After a few minutes pass, the psychiatrist closes the folder and looks expectantly at Charlie. 
Charlie stares back. The psychiatrist extends his arm, palm facing up, as if waiting for a tip. Charlie realizes the psychiatrist is inviting him to explain his problem. Oh, yeah, right. Charlie is cut off his guard and stumbles over his thoughts. Well, I want to tell you about a nightmare I've been having. Charlie hesitates. I've been having this darn thing at least once a week since I was just a kid. The psychiatrist clasps his hands behind his head and leans back in his chair. Charlie continues. You see, I grew up on a little farm. I really loved the place. I felt safe there. My parents were great, too. Charlie, still nervous, looks at the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist says nothing. Charlie continues. I had a room to myself. I didn't have to share with a brother or sister like a lot of my classmates had to. I guess I was pretty lucky that way. The room wasn't real big, but like I said, at least I didn't have to share it with anyone else. Anyway, my room overlooked the cornfield in back of the house, and that's where this nightmare takes place. I find myself looking out my bedroom window. It's nighttime. I can tell it's in the autumn because leaves are all over the ground and the corn stalks are dry. I can see all this very clearly because there's a full moon. Anyway... I'm about to go back to bed because I'm standing on the hardwood floor and my feet are getting cold. That's when I notice something move. I think at first it's just the wind blowing something around, but then I realize it's not the wind because when the wind blows, I can hear the dry leaves and the cornstalks making a rattling sound. But I can't hear anything. There's no sound at all. I keep staring out the window, waiting for the movement. My feet are getting colder, but I don't want to leave the window because I know as soon as I do, whatever moved will move again and I'll miss it. And I get the feeling it's very important I don't miss it. I've got to know what it was that moved. So I continue to wait. Finally, I see the movement again and I'm sorry I did. I'm sorry I ever looked out that window. I get a kind of sick feeling inside. You know, the kind of feeling you get when you're scared. I get this feeling because I realize... It's the scarecrow that moved. Somehow, it's managed to get loose from its mounting. I can't see any details on the scarecrow. It's only a silhouette, but somehow... Charlie pauses. His heart is racing. His knuckles have begun to ache. He wonders why. He looks at his hands and notices how tightly he's gripping the armrests. He breathes in short, choppy gasps. He consciously takes a deep breath, attempting to regain his composure. Somehow, I don't know how, but somehow I know the Scarecrow is looking right at me. I know he wants to do something... bad to me. Despite his best efforts, Charlie's breathing becomes irregular once again. And that scares me, Charlie confesses as he looks away from the psychiatrist. It scares me so much that I freeze in place. I think that if I don't move an inch, if I don't even blink, if I don't even breathe, then maybe the scarecrow will think I'm just a statue or a, a reflection in the window or something and forget about me. But before I know it, he's standing at the edge of the cornfield, right where it touches the backyard. Charlie tries to swallow a hot breath down a parched throat. And I can tell, I can tell he's still looking up at me. It makes it worse that I can't see his face. Do you understand? I, I wouldn't be so scared if... 
even if it were some disgusting skull face or something, I still wouldn't be as scared. It's like he's got some advantage over me by being able to hide his face and yet see mine. Next thing I know, he's halfway across the yard. It's weird because I don't actually see him walking or running, but all of a sudden there he is, already halfway across the yard. Then he's out of sight. But I hear the back door opening. I turn and look out my bedroom door, where I can see the top of the stairwell. I hear a noise. Not footsteps, exactly, but a swishing noise. Almost like a broom sweeping the floor. Then I see him. From the back, coming up the stairs. I can't even describe how scared I am at that point. At least not in words. My stomach, no... It's my whole body. My whole body feels like, like it's tingling, like it's going to explode or something. Charlie exhales loudly. That's where it stops. The psychiatrist leans forward, takes up his pen and jots down a few notes. Like I told you, Charlie offers. I've had that dream since I was a kid, over 20 years now, but I've been able to live with it. That nightmare isn't why I'm here. I started having another one. The psychiatrist looks at his wristwatch. Satisfied that Charlie's time has not yet expired, he leans back in his chair once again as Charlie begins talking. My first impression isn't something I see. It's what I feel. Everything is black, and I feel cold. A wind blows, and it It seems like it passes right through me. Then I feel the loneliness. It feels like a throbbing pain, like an ache I've had forever and one I can expect to have for, well, forever. Then my vision begins to clear. I see a full moon, cornstalks, a house. Charlie notices a water dispenser and some paper cups near the door. May I? The psychiatrist hesitates, nods reluctantly. Charlie gets up and drinks a cup of water. The water feels good as it trickles down his throat. He returns to his chair. I see a window on the second floor. Looking out the window is a little boy. And when I see this boy, my feeling of loneliness is replaced first by jealousy and then by hatred. But I don't want to just kill the boy. I... I want to replace him. Don't you see? I want him to feel the wind passing completely through his body. I want him to feel how the sun and snow work together to rot him. And most of all, I want him to feel the indescribable loneliness. I know who the little boy is. I know the little boy is me, but I still feel this way. Then I realize I'm off the post. I don't know how it's happened, but I'm free. I start moving toward the house. I'm at the edge of the cornfield, and I look up and see that the boy is still staring at me. I stare back. I want to go into the house, but I don't want to lose sight of the boy. I'm afraid that if I don't keep an eye on him, he'll get away from me. But it's just as obvious that I can't get him unless I go inside. I move across the backyard and up to the door. It's unlocked. I go inside. And now something happens that surprises me. I don't need to worry about the boy hiding from me because I can see him. 
In my mind, I can see every move he makes. I start moving up the stairs. Then, then the nightmare ends. The psychiatrist begins writing some cryptic notes in the margins of a notebook. Charlie removes a piece of paper from his shirt pocket and unfolds it with quaking hands. I think I know why I'm having these nightmares, Charlie says. I found this poem about a month ago when I was cleaning out the basement. Right after I found this poem, I started having the second nightmare. I wrote this poem when I was in the fourth grade. We had an assignment. We were supposed to write a poem for homework, and as long as the subject matter had something to do with autumn, we were pretty much free to write what we wanted. Charlie passes the poem, written in childish script, to the psychiatrist. He silently reads, I wish I were a scarecrow and lived in the corn. I'd scare away the birds in clothing old and torn. I wish I were a scarecrow, no problems then for me, no feelings to be hurt, I'd be happy and be free. I wish I were a scarecrow, no homework and no laws, no need for food or water, with a belly full of straws. I wish I were a scarecrow, but wait a minute now, is the scarecrow wishing he were me? Is he wishing that somehow? The psychiatrist finishes and lays the piece of paper on the desk in front of him. I know this sounds crazy, Charlie begins reluctantly, but are there certain things that are only made real because we, well, because we think of them? The psychiatrist smiles indulgently but says nothing. Please tell me I'm full of it, Charlie pleads. Tell me I didn't create something just by thinking of it and writing it down on a piece of paper all those years ago. Tell me I didn't somehow complete its life cycle by reading it again 20 years later. I can't shake the feeling that this nightmare isn't just a nightmare. It's more like a vision of what's actually going to happen sometime in the future. It's going to happen, but not just to me. It's going to happen to everyone. The psychiatrist looks puzzled. That's right. It's going to happen to everyone, Charlie insists. I think what I'm feeling in my nightmare isn't just what one scarecrow feels. I think I'm feeling what all scarecrows feel. It's like I've tapped into their... What is it called? It's like I've tapped into their collective unconscious. The psychiatrist opens his mouth as if to speak. He grimaces. He grips his stomach as if experiencing a sharp pain. He grabs the wastebasket and vomits into it. As he looks into the wastebasket, his eyes open in amazement. He falls to the floor and doubles up in pain. Charlie opens the door and calls the receptionist. Hey, call an ambulance! The doctor's having some kind of seizure! Charlie crosses the room and kneels next to the doctor. He can hear the receptionist calling for assistance. The psychiatrist moans and twitches occasionally. His eyes are glazed over and spittle hangs at the corner of his mouth. The receptionist enters the room and kneels alongside Charlie. Suddenly, the psychiatrist's leg jerks out and knocks over the wastebasket. The contents of the wastebasket spill on the floor. Charlie glances at the mess and sees the psychiatrist vomit. He notices a wad of what appears to be... straw. Attempting to draw her attention to his discovery, Charlie places a hand on the receptionist's shoulder. He feels her hair. He thinks it feels strange, but Charlie is afraid to look. He's afraid because it might not be hair at all. It might be beautiful golden straw. He backs his way out of the room and runs. 
The attendant watches through the glass in the door as Charlie thrashes against the thickly padded walls. A man with a clipboard approaches. Good morning, Jerry, the man says to the attendant. Good morning, Dr. Hastings. How is Charlie today? He was fine earlier, having quite a conversation with himself. Then a few minutes ago, he jumped up and started running around, bouncing off the walls, screaming. Poor guy. I'd sure like to know what's going on inside his head. You think we'll ever know? I doubt it, Jerry, the doctor sighs. He's been like this since he was a child. He started having nightmares when he was about the age of eight. For some reason, known only to Charlie, he refused to tell anyone what the dreams were about. Finally, his parents sent him to a psychiatrist. I believe his name was uh, Dr. Powers. Did he tell the psychiatrist about his nightmares? Jerry asks. Dr. Hastings shakes his head. Nobody really knows what went on in that office. Dr. Powers did record a few notes, none of which meant anything to anyone, and unfortunately, he never had the chance to explain them. He died shortly after Charlie began his session. Died? It, it wasn't Charlie, was it? Oh, of course not. As I said, he was only about eight at the time. In addition, he wasn't exhibiting any violent tendencies whatsoever. It was determined by the medical examiner that Dr. Powers died from food poisoning. He'd just returned from lunch at one of those trendy restaurants. I'm sure you know the type I'm speaking of, very much into organic foods, that sort of thing. Anyway, he'd consumed a plate of spaghetti mixed with mushrooms. Unfortunately, the mushroom supplier didn't do his homework and managed to deliver some poisonous specimens. Powers became ill, vomited, and died right there in front of Charlie. Poor Charlie's never been the same since. That incident could very well be at the root of his problems. He may be reliving it over and over again, but I'm afraid we'll never know. Once again, I'm James Allen May, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes every other Tuesday. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at OctoberByMay.com for more info, as well as links to the books by Edward T. May. Bridge of Sighs by Edward T. May Scarecrow by Moonlight by Edward T. May Recitation and Audio Design by James Allen May Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi